Hello, I'm Tom. I'm a second year Law and Society student and I'll be doing the Bible reading for us today. It's just in the handouts and it's uh, Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing at their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths, they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on behalf of the people of God who will keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had a charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. It's a lot of blood. We'll get there a little bit later. If you want to keep that passage open in front of you, uh, that's what we're going to be looking at today. I was listening to a podcast recently uh, on the progress of secularism in Australian society. 
Uh, for those of you who don't know, secularism is the decline of the religious in public life. Uh, and did you know that between 2011 and 2016, we saw the greatest measure drop in anything in the Australian census? And it was people identifying as religious. Uh, it was the largest drop of anything we'd ever noticed. Uh, and so what it seems like is that in today's society in Australia, we are witnessing a massive shift where once um, Australia kind of identified itself as a religious nation, particularly a Christian nation, but now it's starting to identify itself as a non-religious country or a post-Christian country. And that has some implications, I think, for the way that we view ourselves as Christians in society, uh, because we are now the minority. Now, Rory Shiner, who is on this podcast, he's a Perth pastor over at Providence Church here in Perth. Uh, he, he kind of made the, the analogy that where once before we were what, was, uh, what you would call an intensive form of the culture, namely that we were just the ones that were intense about it. So everyone kind of nominally went, oh, yeah, yeah, I get Christianity. I think it's true. Uh, but, but we were the ones that took it seriously. We're now no longer an intensive form of the culture. What we are is an alternative to the mainstream culture. Translation, we're the weirdos. Uh, we're not the default option anymore. We're the ones that people raise their eyebrows at and on a bad day look at with suspicion. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. A couple of weeks ago in public meeting in Revelation chapter 12, we learned that Satan had been thrown down from heaven and in these final days on earth before Christ returns, his intent is to wage war against the Christians and take down as many of them as possible and draw them away from the faith. Last week we saw in Revelation 13 that the way that he does that is by using two beasts, his agents on earth, who we discovered were symbols of human rebellion against God, political and religious. And we learned that this situation, Satan waging war through his beasts, was the norm of Christian experience at all times and in all places in history. Asia, the Middle East, we heard about Pakistan just before we prayed. That's across North Africa. And now we're starting to see it more and more in Australia. And so as that ramps up in our context, the question becomes for you and I, will we stick it out? It's easy and acceptable to call yourself a Christian, maybe 10, even like around 10, 15 years ago. But but now to put up your hand to be a Christian, well, it's, it's costly. It exacts a price. And if we're not careful, the thing that we'll begin to think to ourselves is, this is just a little bit too hard. It's not worth it. All these voices that I hear on Facebook, on TV, in the media, that, that, that belittle my minority views on morality, sexuality, sin, judgment, maybe it's just not worth it. And we start to wonder whether or not it's just going to be easier to throw in the towel and start to swim with the current rather than push against it rather than endure the hate and the ridicule and the uncertainty of what it looks like to be a Christian in Australian society. And that's where chapter 14 comes in. Chapter 14 is at the end of this section in Romans 12 to 14, and in it we see three scenes of final judgment in verses 1 to 5, verses 6 to 13, and verses 14 to 20. And these three scenes of final judgment, if you like, are windows into our future as Christians. Uh, They tell us how our story ends. And they tell us that now in the present, so that when we face persecution and pressure and walk that narrow road, that we would be willing to pay the price that is increasing day by day as we live. 
So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at those scenes. We're going to encourage ourselves, figure out why it is that we should stay true to Christ in this space. Uh, So let's have a look at the first scene. Victory is sung, verses 1 to 5. Open your Bibles, have a look uh, there with me in verses 1 to 5. I'll read them out for you. Then I, that is to say John, the one who's seeing this vision, looked, and there before me was the Lamb, who we know to be Jesus from earlier on, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those, and here's the interesting verse, who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So John sees a vision, and that vision is of Jesus, the lamb, standing on Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. And standing with him are 144,000 people. Now, who are these people? I don't want to do all the hard work today, so I'm going to turn it over to you. 20 seconds with the person next to you. Who do you think the 144,000 people are? That should be enough to get all the wrong answers out. How did we go? So um, I heard somebody say, oh, it's easy. So that, that's, that's, good. that's a good sign. So, um, I think it's pretty clear as we look at this passage that we are at least talking about believers in some form. Yeah? As you look at verse 1, they have the name of Jesus and his father's name on their foreheads. Verse 3, they are the ones that have been redeemed from the earth. Uh, but then we get into some tricky business in verses 4 and 5. And I think the real question for us is, are we talking about all believers or a particular subset of them. Because you look at verse 4 and you see them as described as those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they remain virgins. Uh, and then a little bit later on, we're told they're purchased from mankind and offered as first fruits to God. So not the whole harvest, but seemingly a bit of it. And so it makes me wonder, are we talking about a particular, uh, particular subset of Christians? Are these the Christians that never married? Uh, are they the martyrs? Are they Jewish Christians? All of these options have kind of been aired at one point or another. But I just want to throw the cards down on the table early. And I want to say that this is representing all believers everywhere. And the reason I think that is because we have seen the 144,000 before in Revelation. Can any of you remember where that may be? It's chapter 7 and in particular verse 3. If you flick over there, if you've got your Bibles on you, you'll see that the servants of God God, are marked with a seal on their foreheads, chapter 7, verse 3. And they're described as the tribes of Israel, uh, which may make make you think, hang on a minute, he's talking about Jewish Christians here. Uh, But then straight away after that description in verse 9, it says this, After I looked out, there before me were a great multitude that nobody could count from every nation, tribe, people and language. 
And it's that juxtaposition of the two images, the 144,000 in heaven and this great multitude of people around the Lamb, that tells me that the number that we are looking at here is symbolic for the totality of God's people. Once we've got that staked in the ground, it now pushes us to ask, well, then what the heck is going on with all of the virgins? Uh, And as with most things in Revelation... It's funny. Let's just do want to get the giggles out. I'm trying to, you know, I don't want to make it too funny because, you know, we, we want to take this seriously. But that's it, a lot of virgins, isn't it? But, um, as with most things in Revelation, it's a symbol. Uh, it's quite common uh, in the Bible to see this as a symbol of faithfulness, uh, to describe the relationship between God and his people in terms of sexual faithfulness. Uh, and you actually see this in today's passage. If you skim your eyes down to verse 8... Look at how Babylon is described. The angel says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And then notice how her rebellion is described there. She who made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. So it's not just that she's some kind of crazy, kind of fornicating person floating around the place. What what it's showing us here in this image is that her rebellion against God is described in terms of unfaithfulness. If you look up on the screen, here's another example. This one is from 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, in chapter 11. And Paul is writing to Corinthian Christians, and he says this to them. I hope you'll put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ. So here's some of that faithfulness language starting to come out. So that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning... Your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So what we are seeing here in Revelation 14 is a picture of all of God's people on that final day. And they are described in this way because they are the ones that have remained faithful to him and not turned aside to follow the ways of the world and worship the beast and the things that represent that counterfeit kingdom of Christ that Satan set up. That's why in verse 5, no liars found in their mouths. It's not as if they've never lied. They're Christians. They would have sinned. Uh, It's just that they have remained faithful to the truth of the gospel and they haven't denied Christ. So that's who the 144,000 are. But I think what's significant about this scene is not who they are, but what they are doing. And did you notice what they're doing? Have a look there in the passage. They're singing. And significantly, we see in verse 3 that they are singing... You know, one of the old hits from the 70s that your mum listened to? No, they're singing a new song. Uh, In the scriptures, whenever a new song is sung, it is usually in response to a work of salvation that God has done for his people. And in this particular case, it is his final salvation when Christ returns to redeem his people from the earth. And so what John is showing us here is a sneak peek into the very end. God's people, so many and so loud that they're described like the rush of many waters. It's sort of like standing next to a waterfall and it drowns out every other sound. You can't hear a thing. And these people are standing there on this mountain with Jesus, singing God's victory song over Satan in chapter 12, over the beasts in chapter 13. And though they have been persecuted and mistreated, some of them even killed, here they stand, 144,000 people, a complete number a perfect number, having overcome the trials of the last days. And what John is saying to the Christians in the first century and to the Christians like you and I is that that is where you are heading. 
This is what awaits you if you endure the persecution now. You will be among that perfect people, that perfect number, singing the victory song with your Christ on his holy hill. And you know what that's like, don't you? We had Credo Conference over the weekend. Fantastic. If you missed it, that's okay. MIC is still coming. And there are these moments when we are singing the songs together and we're all singing the praises of God and and our troubles just seem to fall away and all we know is the joy of fellowship with Jesus and the joy of fellowship with one another. And that's the foretaste of what it'll look like on that last day on that holy hill. It's not though that we'll be singing all the time. There'll also be lots of eating. Uh, there's lots of feasts in heaven. Um, but that's the picture that we're invited to contemplate and to anticipate. When the hardship is done, we will sing victory. So that's the first scene. The second scene, a little bit different. This is where judgment is declared. Uh, verses 6 to 13 consists of three angels flying overhead and what they do is they declare that judgment has come and we can see them one by one so if you see the first angel there in verse six he has an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth to every nation tribe language and people and he says in a loud voice fear god and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come worship him who made the heavens the earth the sea and the springs of water Now, in the first century, a gospel was a declaration of important news. Think of it as sort of like a news flash. And it was commonly used in connection with the great military and political victories of the Roman Caesars. And in this context, when the angel flies over the head and declares the eternal gospel to the world, what he is declaring is not a call to repent. That opportunity was pre-Revelation 14. That opportunity is gone now. What he's declaring is that the eternal reign of Christ has now been made manifest over all of creation. That's the gospel that's being proclaimed here. And so just as a conquered people would be called to pay homage to their conqueror, their new ruler, so all the earth now is called to pay homage to Jesus, the one who has finally been manifest and shown to be the ruler of them. So the first angel glides over. The second angel now comes afterwards in verse 8. And he cries out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now the great city Babylon here is a symbol in Revelation to describe all of humanity united together in rebellion against God. Think Tower of Babel. This is Genesis 11. Everybody comes together and they, they want to make a name for themselves by building a tower that reaches to the heavens in complete disregard for God and what he wants for humanity. And so the angel kind of swings in and what he is saying here is that that great project of rebellion is no more. The tower has fallen, the workers are gone and scattered. Uh, it is not moving forward. Now, we've already talked a bit about Babylon's sin before and how it's cast in terms of sexual infidelity, but I want you to notice how it's described here. Uh, Babylon made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries, literally the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, the reason I'm drawing attention to this is because of the third angel. The third angel flies overhead uh, in verse 9 and says with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, literally the wine of the passion of God. Except here, that same word passion isn't understood sexually, it's understood in terms of anger. We're talking God's 
wrath here. And we see there, continuing to read through the passage, that it has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. And so it's like for like. If you drink from one cup of passion, then you must drink from the other cup of passion. The great news of the gospel is that Jesus has drunk that cup of God's wrath for you. When he died on the cross, he took the cup, he drained it to the dregs so that we wouldn't have to. And anybody who comes to him is forgiven of their adulteries, their unfaithfulnesses, and are granted eternal life. But that is not the case for those who do do not worship Jesus, but instead worship the beast and his image. Instead, this is from the middle of verse 10, they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb. So Jesus is there. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. And we talked last week in PM about that mark. You don't need to be worried. That's not physical. It's symbolic for people who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus. And what we see here is that their torment rises and never ends because of it. And so just as we saw in the first scene, a song of the victorious. Now in this second scene, what do we see? The torment of the defeated. Now, it might be tempting to kind of balk at this description of judgment and kind of start to question the love and gentleness of God. But the lamb that was slain is also the lion that rules. And here we see the great cost of those who choose to disobey Jesus. Because remember who they they are refusing. They are refusing the one who not only made them, but who died to redeem them. Uh, We just had Mother's Day on the weekend, uh, and it's not an exaggeration to say that this sort of treatment of Jesus is sort of like killing your own mother on Mother's Day. And uh, Sorry if that's kind of a bit coarse and and a bit rough, like, oh, that's kind of how how you're doing, but I really struggled to kind of find a way to describe to you just how baselessly evil it is, not only to ignore Christ, but to persecute his people because of the testimony of his grace that they witness to. That's the incredible madness and ingratitude of sin. Because the gospel message is one of self-sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of God for his enemies, not his friends, for people who have rejected him. It's the extension of grace, the giving of amnesty, when the ruler actually willingly lays down his life for the rebels. And it's a promise of forgiveness. It's the guarantee of eternal life and relationship with him. And the God who is wholly pure and loving and generous and desirable That's the God that people actively seek to suppress and destroy and remove any last vestige of him in the world. Those who worship the beast are sort of like an activist group who commit themselves to wiping out every hospital in the known world. It's sort of like they kind of plan intentionally. They raise funds to kind of parachute into India so they can systematically go around and belt and break every ventilator they can find. That's the sort of kind of horror and evil that's happening when people try to suppress the name of Christ. And so it is right and good that they receive what they receive in this passage. Now, why is it so graphic? Well, it's because it's a warning. And this might surprise you. It's not a warning to unbelievers, but to believers. Uh, Verse 12 tells us why this vision is being given. It says there, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and key phrase, remain faithful to Jesus. 
Now, it's not to say that unbelievers can't read this and be warned. Uh, if you aren't a follower of the Lord Jesus, I really hope that you become one. Uh, I met a man from Belarus uh, when I was a trainee on, on campus, uh, and he became a Christian by reading Revelation. Do you want to know what his testimony was? Really, really short. And I quote, follow Jesus or be barbecued. <laughs> that, 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 was his, that was his summary message from Revelation. Uh, and I think we see that coming out here in, in Revelation chapter 14, right? And it was so confronting to him that he was just like, yeah, I've got to bow the knee to Jesus. Uh, so that's what he got. But the warning is actually first and foremost for believers. As they call to mind the vision that John describes with all its kind of confronting imagery and they hear those three angels swoop across yelling out the judgment of God, they are being warned of the cost if they throw the town and they throw it in and they stop following Jesus. In effect, what Jesus is saying to them and to us is, you think it's costly now, suffering for my name? Look at what will happen if you change sides. And then he assures us, verse 13, we are blessed if we die in the Lord from now on, and we will rest from our labor, for our deeds will follow us. The labor here, I think, is talking about our persevering in faith and the consistency of our testimony under fire, And those deeds will follow us into the judgment. And unlike those who do not follow Jesus, who will not find rest day or night, we the faithful will find rest. Our troubles will be temporary and they will give way to the spoils of victory. But the troubles of God's enemies are eternal. And so as we look through this window into the future, where judgment is finally declared and Christ's rule is finally established... We can let it shape our experience of today. And we patiently endure because we know what's coming. That's the second scene. So, so far we've seen the victory of Christ sung by his people. Judgment declared on his enemies. And then in verse 14 to 20, we actually see it come to pass. John looks again and the scene that he sees is of the earth being harvested. If you skim your eyes over the verses 16 and onwards, you actually see that it happens twice. Once in verses 14 to 16, and then again in verses 17 to 20. Now, in both harvests, somebody has a sharp sickle, and they are commanded by another angel who comes out of the heavenly temple to take that sickle and reap, and they swing it across the surface of the earth, and the earth is harvested. The harvest here represents the end of the age, uh, it's a, a metaphor that kind of pops up quite a lot in the New Testament. You can see it in particular in Matthew thirteen thirty nine, thirteen thirty nine, And what is harvested is people. Now, why are there two harvests? I thought there was only one end of the age. It only happened once, and that's true. So we're not talking anything about rapture here. Uh, what's happening is that the same event is being shown from two different angles. Now, it's a little unclear, I think, as to whether the first harvest is like of believers and then second is unbelievers or whether they're both of unbelievers, but we're just kind of emphasising different things. Uh, I'll let you think about that in your own time. Ultimately, it doesn't matter uh, because we know that both happen from clearer parts of the Scripture. Uh, And what's obvious here is that the harvest of unbelievers is on display. Uh, In verse 18, the angel says, uh, the angel with the sharp sickle is commanded to do this. Verse 18, take your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles, 
for a distance of 1,600 stadia. That's a visceral image, isn't it? Have you ever seen somebody tread a wine press? Maybe you've done it yourself. I hate it. It's just gross. Like the grapes stain and they splatter up. And it's very, very easy if you're making red wine to just imagine it and see it as gore and blood. And that's the difference, I think. Every other wine press you would have seen, you know, in the south of France or wherever it was that you were you know, doing on your nice little holiday, those wine presses and the wine press of God's wrath, this one doesn't drip grape juice. It drips blood. And it bleeds high and it bleeds long. And just to give you an idea of how much we're talking, um, here's Jerusalem uh, on the map of the Middle East. Uh, and here's how far the blood goes. It's a radius of about 300 kilometres. It's enough to cover the entire nation of Israel. It's almost the exact area of the nation of New Zealand. Let the reader understand. <laughs> it is a lot of blood. What's actually going on here? Well, I think the image of the winepress of the God's wrath comes from Joel chapter 3. Here's what it says. Joel chapter 3, verse 12. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's just outside Jerusalem. For there I, the Lord, will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Why do the vats overflow? It's because their wickedness is great. Cut and paste that, put it into Revelation 14, and what do you get? What's the go with this visceral, gory image that we have in Revelation 14? I think it tells us two things. It tells us just how wicked the world is. The wickedness doesn't just overflow, but it runs for miles. And it tells us the intensity with which God will stamp it out. And this is the response to evil that you and I have been waiting for. As we live in an increasingly secular, secular culture, it's a sexual culture too, unfortunately, we, and we start to feel kind of more keenly that, that hatred that the world has toward Christ and his people, and the smirks become sneers and the whispers become shouts and the threats become reality, this scene, just like the two before it, I think will become increasingly precious to us. Not because we delight in the death of the wicked. Our God doesn't do that, so we don't either but because it pitches for us justice and the end of tyranny and the end of the mistreatment of the people of God. God will take that vine, that thing that has up until now been allowed to grow wicked and wild and entangle the earth and strangle the gospel, and he will trample it like they trampled Christ. And that's the third scene. So what do we do with that, hey? Well, as we close, I want to encourage you to do one simple thing, and that's to commit these three scenes to memory. If you want to memorise the whole of Revelation 14, that's fine, but I'm thinking about the images, these precious windows into our future. It won't be hard. They are very, very vivid. A victory song sung by 144,000, angels swooping overhead declaring judgment, and the treading of the winepress of the wrath of God. And I want you to mentally take those images and I want you to put them in your metaphysical wallet. We all have one, you may be surprised, but there you go, it's in your back pocket. When you watch war movies, right, in in virtually every war movie, 
the soldier will have a picture of their sweetheart back home, right? They always kind of pull it out of their top pocket, like, look at my lovely lady. And, you know, like, oh, okay, cool, great, thanks, thanks for sharing. Uh, and when they're sitting in the trenches, and it's muddy, and it's wet, and it's freezing cold, what do they do? They pull out the pictures, and for a brief moment, they are no longer in the trenches. Instead, they are lifted out of them as they are reminded of who they are fighting for, and who they will one day be reunited with. And like the soldier, I want to suggest that when you find yourself in the trenches, you pull these images out and remind yourself of where you are headed, where the end state of affairs will be. Recently, we put up some posters in one of the colleges for the first time. Uh, It was an advertising event to explore Jesus. This is... All it was, Jesus explained, considered, discussed. They all got taken down straight away. First time we ever tried it. It seems so small. But what do you do in that moment? Do you say, well, we tried, but we probably should just keep our heads down from now on. Failed strategy doesn't matter. Or do you take those pictures out of that wallet and you call to mind the victory of Christ? Remember where history is heading and the desperate need that people have to hear the gospel of grace before they hear the gospel of judgment declared by the angels. And then we put up twice as many later on. Because that's what keeps us faithful. When Christianity is mocked in your tutorials, when Jesus is maligned by your friends and unbelieving family, when the world says no, it's the windows into our future the photos in our wallet that keep us going to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us the end of the story. Help us to have that heavenly vision before us at all times. Let it give us courage and boldness to continue to witness to Christ in an increasingly persecuting environment. Help us to triumph with Christ in that last day, just as we have already triumphed with him now. We ask this in his name. Amen. Now, we've got two minutes. Do you want to close, Josh, or did you want to have a question or two? Cool. Are there any questions floating around in your heads? It only takes one and then the flood comes out. Who's going to be brave? Moo's normally the one with 20 questions, but he just left, so I don't know what to do. (laughs) Yeah, Kate, hit us up. suppose it depends on how you think about the cup. Is it one like physical, literal cup? And if Jesus drinks it all, then it's all good. Um, you're actually tapping into an area of theology that is perhaps really quite controversial amongst evangelicals as to whether Jesus died only for the elect, in other words, those who will eventually be saved, or for everyone. Um, and I can't give you a clear answer. What I can point to is the fact that the scripture holds both and says both happen. Uh, and whether we can reconcile that tension any further, perhaps we can sit down and work on it, but for the moment I'm quite happy to sit and see that Jesus drinks it, um, 
and he drinks it so that we don't have to, and yet the cup is still there um, for us. Uh, Well, not for us, but for those who don't seize Jesus as their own.